All right. I guess let's 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 get started. Um, good. So hi, um, I'm Natalie Van Toll. I'm here with the um, Colorado Springs Oral History Project, LGBTQ plus Oral History Project, and um, joining us is Reverend Mallory Everhart. Um, would you like to give yourself a little bit of an introduction um, to you know, like title? or um, pronouns? Sure, yeah. So um, my name is Reverend Mallory Everhart. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am a cisgender bisexual uh, woman and have lived in Colorado Springs since 2013. Um, and I'm currently a religious professional in a progressive Christian church uh, and, uh, and an active member of the queer community. Yeah, um, I was super excited to um, to hear um, that I was going to be interviewing you, um, just because I do have personal connections with the church, and it's definitely not uh, you definitely don't meet um, queer um, pastors very often, and so um, I uh, was very interested to to get to meet you and and hear your story. Um, so jumping right in um where did you grow up um and uh along those lines um were you raised religious sure um so i was born in michigan um and we moved to aurora colorado so about an hour north of here uh, when i was six and a half so in 1998 and I've basically lived in Colorado most of my life, um, except for a, a, I went out of state for undergrad. I was raised religious. Um, my mom was a first-generation Christian. She wandered into a church uh, when she was six, in sixth grade, and she stayed there. Um, and when uh, she moved away, and when we moved back to Colorado, um, she moved back to Colorado as an adult when we were, when my siblings and I were children, we actually came back to the same church that she kind of wandered into in sixth grade. And so I was raised um, in in that church. It was a pretty conservative church, uh, a, a church in the, what's called the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, uh, which is a, a pretty fundamentalist uh, tradition. Um, but yes, I was, I was absolutely a church kid. And my mom was like that church lady. She was the, uh, the youth group leader and did vacation Bible study. I mean, she was, we, we were always at church. I was probably at church maybe three, four times a week, like uh, all through growing up. So uh, faith and spirituality has always been a, a big piece of, of my identity, both how I was raised and then kind of reclaiming it later in life. Very cool. Um, yeah. Churches are a huge part of, of childhood. Um, uh, does your family still live in Colorado? Um, yeah, um, oddly, I am the only one left here. So Colorado was, but was home for all of us for a really long time. But uh, my mom passed away in 2019. My dad lives in Florida. Um, my brother lives, one brother lives in Baltimore and one brother lives in Indianapolis. So we're kind of scattered to the four winds uh, and I'm the only one who kind of stayed home. Yeah. Um, 
I guess, um, do you have um, a partner or um, family, you know, family growing here um, in the Springs? Yeah, so what brought me to the Springs is I moved here for my partner. Um, I am partnered with a man. Uh, we've been married since 2014. Uh, and his family's based here. So I have in-laws here. Um, and yeah, so we've been married for about eight years now. And, uh, but no children, many pets. <laughs> we have two dogs and a cat, so. Oh, fur babies are, are a huge part of everybody's <laughs> life. Absolutely. Um, Don't tell my cat she's not, she's not a kid, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously that that answers one of one of my other questions about the length of time that you've lived in the springs and what you, what brought you to the springs. Um, how has living in the springs been? <laughs> oh goodness, uh, we had a strict three year plan that we were getting out of here, like to live literally anywhere else, um, because you know as we were both figuring out our identities and as you know we had concurrently a. Um, uh, sort of a political deconstruction and and recognize like kind of what Colorado Springs is and how it operates. Um, we were like, nope, we're getting out of Dodge. <laughs> and then we started making community um, and, that, and that started to change things because we put down roots. And one of the things that has kept me in Colorado Springs is that the type of organizing that like me and my community does, um, uh, another set of your, um, your classmates, I think, interviewed a, a dear friend of mine, Nico Wilkinson. They started a, a queer open mic, right? So in Denver, even, you start a queer open mic and that's just Tuesday. In Colorado Springs, especially in the timeframe that we're talking about 2015, 2016, when, you know, we're, we're talking inside out youth services had been, uh, been like bomb threatened. The NAACP had been bomb threatened. Planned Parenthood had the shooting a little bit later, right? So it was really, a, a pretty tumultuous time in the springs. And so taking up that kind of space and being out and proud and creating these, these pockets of community, it, it's both really scary and really important because, and yeah, like, like I said, in Denver, that's just Tuesday, but here just an hour south, like it's really, it's really taking a pretty radical space to, to create um, places where, where people are, are uh, affirmed and loved um, and, and can find uh, communities of solidarity. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more about the, the culture shock, um, having moved <laughs> south myself. Um, yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely a big difference. Um, along that, along those lines, um, uh, you mentioned quite a few different community spaces that you find important, but um, would you want to go into a little bit more detail about some of those spaces that you find particularly important? Um, sure. Um, so a lot of my formation especially before I came back to church, uh, came, I came up in the spoken word community. Um, so it's less active now, but there is a group called Here, Here, uh, H-E-A-R comma H-E-R-E, -E, uh, exclamation point. Um, and, and that was a, a poetry open mic that had been going for, um, for several years before I got here. And then uh, a particular community organizer uh, Susan Pfeiffer, who actually I think may also be 
in the in the conversation uh, with some of your folks at at one point or another, um, and if not, she should be. Uh, she turned it into a, a spoken words uh, poetry slam, which is competitive spoken word poetry. Um, so that was really one of these these spaces. I don't know if you're familiar with the history of of spoken word, but it really is a place where people who are marginalized and silenced in other places, where their voices can be uplifted. Um, so it was one of the first times that I was around um, people who held different identities than than I did. Uh, the denomination I grew up as the third widest denomination in the states. Um, so so not a lot of. Um, uh, a diversity or variety of perspectives in in the places that I was and so um, both in Denver and here in the Springs like spending time in the spoken word community was was really eye-opening and gave me a lot of permission and then also taught me a lot about um, solidarity and community and how to be together especially across varied you know varied experiences and also like um mental health challenges and trauma and, and all these things that are kind of alive in any time that you get a group of marginalized people in the same room together. Um, but, the, but the power of telling your story um, and being seen and witnessed and heard is, is incredibly transformative. Um, so, so I would say that um, that has been a huge piece of um, both my, my political formation and my um, uh, yeah, my my experience as a queer person. So here, here has mostly transitioned to supporting uh, youth in the public school system, doing like youth poetry workshops and helping youth find their voice and tell their story. Um, but poetry seven one nine, the the current poet laureate Ashley Cornelius, um, she and and her partner uh, Christopher Beasley, uh, they started poetry seven one nine, which which is uh, basically a series of, of open mics and workshops, but really what they did, they're, they're both of African descent and they, um, they created spaces that, that uplifted voices of marginalized people, you know, even in an even more um, deliberate way than Here Here did. So they were doing like BIPOC queer voices and uh, voices of disability, you know, things like that, where, where when you have these these double and triple triple jeopardies, um, you know, it's even more important to uh, to hear those stories from the margins. So so poetry specifically has been has been huge. Um, I also you know found myself in, um, in you know within the progressive church. Um, there are a handful of us around. There you know we're we're in that uh, you know the the church per capita <laughs> statistics. Are, are are pretty wild here in Colorado Springs and the places where um, uh, that are progressive or so socially progressive, um, foster diversity and and actually care about people who are marginalized are fewer and further between. Um, but it was um, you know it's it's it does it does exist and the those pockets of of refuge from for people who are marginalized um, they they are here. Um, other than that, uh, my community is a little bit broader. So I went to um, seminary in Denver at the uh, I Live School of Theology, which is on the University of Denver campus. Um, and you know, the, when you're in school, you kind of and you're you know similar to the block plan. You're, you're like you're immersed with people who are thinking about the same thing that you are, and like want to see the same type of world that you do. And um, and it creates incredible community across kind of the hyper localized. Uh, like local community, um, and and since then I've I have found some 
um, you know, some comrades and compatriots with uh, with people who are in, invested in doing social change work from a from a spiritual perspective and, and bringing um, spiritual wisdom and tools to bear uh, in movements for social change. So kind of a, a wide variety, but uh, but it, it, it's what helps me feel connected. So yeah, it's definitely definitely a good group of, of people um, from very you know very varied backgrounds. Um, but that's what everyone's community should look like. Um, so, um, I mean, what, um, you know, jumping, jumping onto the, the, um, the point about seminary, what did motivate you to go to seminary? Um, cause <laughs> yeah. that's a, that's a big decision. It, it was, it was, um, so, so the background is that I have had a 10 year career in healthcare. Um, so I went to undergrad, I was a biology major. Um, now the, 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 the undergrad that I went to taught young earth creationism. So I am not sure what being a biology major actually means like this particular piece of piece of paper from this particular, uh, institution, except that I did a lot of like work around like human anatomy, genetics, like some, you know, some of these kinds of things. I, I, I went, went to school thinking I was going to be a doctor, um, organic chemistry, uh, is what kind of washes people out of the uh, pre-med program and I am a proud washout um, <laughs> and like it I, my brain just does not think that way um, but I but I did wind up graduating with a with a degree in biology um, a bachelor's of arts of biology which is also very funny to me but um, so when you you know it kind of was this like oh I thought I had this life trajectory for me what do I do and there was a career fair that that kind of pointed us at like there are other things you can do besides just going to medical school so some of that was nursing some of that was like speech language pathology so you know um social work some of these other things that are medical tangential but not like um you're not like I'm going to be a doctor and so I got really interested in speech language pathology and I shadowed a um a speech language pathologist who works with uh, children and uh, realized very quickly that I was very glad that someone was doing that work and pretty sure it wasn't going to be me. Um, so the other the other kind of side of that is um, working with people who have traumatic brain injuries, working with people who have um, have had strokes, um, have difficulty swallowing kind of on the elder care side of things. Um, and so I made the decision that I that I wanted to work in nursing homes um, <clears throat> to see if I could do it, because that's also not a an environment that everyone thrives in. Um, and so my last year of undergrad, I got a, a job in a nursing home. So I had a 10-year career after, from that point in nursing homes, mostly doing um, nursing home social services, which you can't call social work because of like jurisprudence. Social work is a very particular thing, but I was essentially acting as a social worker in uh, in nursing home settings. And um, there's a couple of, of experiences that I had in that in that setting. One was um, being with someone at the time that they died uh, was an incredible spiritual experience for me. Um, I was talking with someone about this the other day and they said that that uh, the deathbed is a thin place. And so I wasn't necessarily wouldn't have called myself spiritual at the time, but I, I was, after that experience, I was driven to kind of 
understand what was happening on a deeper level because I, I had this very clear understanding that something um, there was something something dip, like deeper going on. So then I also um, uh, a little while later, um, so I was working as, as essentially a social worker and one of the things that we had to do was this questionnaire called the PHQ-9 which is a nine question survey that screens for depression. So for you and I, um, it, it makes sense, right? Have there been changes in your eating? Have there been changes in your sleeping? Are there changes in what brings you pleasure? You know, are you not doing things you're normally interested in doing? I mean, like things that would indicate depression for, you know, for those of us who do not have a terminal illness. So when someone is dying, um, those symptoms, that are on that list are almost uniquely what is also part of the dying process. So mm -hmm. you start sleeping a whole lot more, you stop eating, you know, there is less energy to engage with things that you normally like to do. And so we had this woman, her name was Joanne. I'll never forget her. Um, and I had to do this assessment with her and it's federally required. Like I have to do this as part of my job. It's part of federal, federal compliance. We can get in like, real trouble if I didn't like lose the nursing home licensure. Um, so it's like kind of a high stakes thing to do this. And I know that she has pancreatic cancer. And I was putting off going into her room because I knew that these questions were not like the thing that I wanted to, to you know, to, to ask her. And so I went in there and I was like, hey, I have these questions. I, you know, I have to ask them of you. Um, and we get about two thirds of the way through them. And she goes, these are the wrong questions. I have pancreatic cancer. And I'm like, and I knew this in my soul, like on every level, I was like, this is wrong. This is not how I want to be in this room. And, um, and so, so um, I said, I know, I, I know I, I have better ones. These are the ones I have to, I have to ask you, but I have better ones when we're done. But she was so over me by the time that we were done that she tur literally turned over and turned her face to the wall and was like, basically like, get the hell out of my room. And I'm like, fair. Uh, <laughs> and so I kind of leave with my tail between my legs. It was Friday afternoon because I was literally putting it off to exactly the last moment because I was just like dreading doing this. And it was as bad as I thought it was going to be. And I just knew that, um, that I'd failed her somehow. That, that, I, that there were other ways I could have been with her and I didn't know how to do that. And so, um, so I'm driving away from work on Friday, you know, Friday night and I'm like, all right, when I get back on Monday, I'm going to just be with this person. I'm gonna try again, not with any kind of agenda, whether it's federally mandated or not. Like I'm just gonna, I'm gonna try. I'm, I'm gonna try. And maybe, maybe it'll go somewhere, maybe it won't. Um, and I got to work on Monday morning and she'd passed away over the weekend. <laughs> And so I never got the chance. And so um, part of my living amends to her is to not miss those kinds of chances. Um, and, and when my soul is telling me like, you know, shut up and listen or ask different questions, like to, to, to honor the wisdom that's there uh, and, 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 um, and show up differently than, than I was able to do. So that sent me on a path looking for okay, I don't have the skills to do this right now. What do I actually need to do? <clears throat> and I was a biology major in high school.
in college um, and I was working as a social worker. So I was like, okay, you know, hospice is really interesting. It, it literally only does this work with, you know, with people who are dying. Maybe I can do that. And um, I was kind of like thinking through it. I was like, okay, I, I have most of my nursing prereqs. I could go back to nursing school. Like I could do that. Um, but I really don't like like bodily fluids. That's not a thing that I love. And so um, I was like, maybe not the fit. And I was like working as a social worker at the time. And I was like, okay, yeah, like I could, I could maybe like go back and get my MSW, like that could work. And I was like, ah, that doesn't quite feel right. And I had left my fundamentalist religion <clears throat> at that time, but in the ways that these things happen, like you still carry some of the beliefs, as long as they go unexamined, you still carry them. Right. So I had um, pretty specific ideas about my role as a woman and what I was allowed to do as um, as uh, you know, what my roles could be, because those were pretty clearly defined in the in the tradition that I grew up in. But I'd left that tradition years before. Um, but I I'd never bumped up against this, you know, this kind of idea that like only men can be pastors or only you know, men should <laughs> kind of do this kind of spiritual care work. And then I was like, wait. I could do that actually, I'd be quite good at that. And it was literally like, uh, like the sky opened up and God was like, oh my me, it took you long enough. And, and, and it was like something clicked into place. Um, and that was, you know, in ministry, we talk about our call story. So this was the moment of, of a call story. Um, so I didn't really want to move my family. Um, it wasn't just really feasible, both financially and everything. And so uh, there is some, uh, there are there are, there are some theological education opportunities here in Colorado Springs, but as you might imagine, they are not maybe where I would want to pursue said education, um, <laughs> put as politely as possible. Um, and uh, and um, and then I was looking at at ILIF um, School of Theology. And I did not identify as a Christian at the time that I applied to seminary um, because I was like, nope, y'all only cause harm. There's no way for, you know, there is no way in for me, but ILIF is really committed to interfaith exploration um, and had like a long list of all the faith traditions that were represented both on their faculty and in their student body. And they, and they were proud of the fact that they had you know, folks from, you know, Protestant denominations of all kinds, um, Jehovah's Witness, uh, uh, Wiccan and Pagan, um, uh, Muslim. I mean, like they, they really like had as wide a variety as a, as a, as a Protestant seminary could. Um, and, and I was like, okay, technically a Christian school, but if they're cool with like all these Unitarians hanging out, then like maybe, I, you know, maybe there's a place for me there. So I applied to school as spiritual but not religious, fully convinced that I was um, was going to be a hospice chaplain, and that was my my goal. Um, I eventually did become a hospice chaplain, uh, but it is not the sum total of of the the work that has been done in and through me. Um, but but at that time, it was like a very like narrow vision of what what it meant to receive theological education. Um, so yeah, that is the the story of what what brought me to seminary one of the 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 reason I came back to organized religion though was that um I felt very keenly that I didn't want to just be a freewheeling person without grounded in any particular tradition 
Um, and I need, and I felt that I needed accountability, um, that being in community and being accountable to something larger than myself was really important. And I was like, well, hell, I probably need to go to church. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and I also, uh, did a lot of choir singing in high school and, and college. And there are really like very few places where you can sing with other people and church is one of them. Um, and so I was like, okay, like I, you know, I miss singing. I, I need this other piece. Like, you know, maybe, maybe we'll go back to church. Um, and I, and I, you know, like my mom wandered in the doors of, of a particular church and I stayed and I was like, all right. Um, may, you know, very, very cautiously at first, maybe, maybe I can make a home with these people. And now, now I have, so <laughs> took some time though. Well, I, I want to commend you for your work. Um, my parents are both nurses. And so my dad oh, has wow. spent the last three years working in geriatric care and um, people like you are, are um, very valuable and um, very needed. And so um, I can very much so appreciate um the the work that you've been doing it's hard but necessary um and so anyway I wanted to affirm that um thank you thank you <laughs> because I felt that it needed to be said um but um yeah uh I I can't agree more that um that for for me um choir is one of the things that, that always seems to draw me back to church um <laughs> regardless of how I'm feeling um there's just something about about song um uh yeah jumping um, to to your church that you're pastoring now um oh, what Kenzie, did you have a question or oh yeah I just wanted to ask um did you know that you were queer at the time when um you decided to uh go back into um uh the church um, and did that like affect your decision yeah uh so in the ways that sometimes like coming out in uh in adulthood tends to go i was just like a very strong ally i was like yeah no one that i love like i'm not going to go anywhere where no, you know where people that i love are not welcome so the back back story is that all of my undergrad all of our my friends wound up being the queer underground and all of us came out later um but what weren't able to because it was a hostile environment where we were in undergrad um and so you know so like when i was getting married when i was um you know like uh you know searching for a faith community the way that i was making sense of it was i yeah i, I i'm not going to go anywhere where people that i love are not welcome in this way that like allyship can kind of be a door into questioning your own, like your own identities. Like, no, I'm just like, very, I'm the, I'm the biggest a ally, like, you know, and, and, and then I'm like, hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> um, and so it started as a, as the way of being in solidarity. And then as I, you know, started to question uh, lots of things, like lots of, you know, when you start pulling on certain threads, you know, all of the, all of the stuff that I had, you know, internalized from my previous faith tradition and from, from the ways that I was educated, when you start pulling on some of them, they all start to kind of unravel. And then I was like, oh, it isn't just allyship. Oh boy. Okay. Um, and so it was a, it was very early that I came out within, um, within my new faith context, 
but the but the doorway I'd say was was allyship if that makes sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, uh, I think. Um, yeah, would you would you mind sharing where you went to undergrad um, and sort of, um, you know, how you came how do you came to to be there? I understand I understand the the pathway to uh, to fundamentalist colleges, having gone to a, a Christian school myself, um, but. Mm -hmm uh just sort of how you got there um and what um what sort of pulled you out from the uh the fundamentalist um brain if we can call it that sure yeah yeah um so i was a product of lutheran education born and bred my mom was a lutheran school teacher and um I went to Denver Lutheran High School, which actually no longer exists. It's now uh, Lutheran High School Parker, Lutheran High School of the Rockies, you know, something to that effect. They, they um, shortly after I was there, they they merged both schools. Um, and uh, yeah, the the like pipeline is real, um, in that you know the recruiters from the Lutheran College come to the Lutheran High School, and there's a sort of this expectation to the point where um, when I was in second grade and um, my mom was a Lutheran grade school teacher and she was, she was teaching. And when I was in second grade, there was a, a recruiter from the Lutheran seminary. So we're talking grad school, talking to second graders about church work, right? So like it is intense. Um, and I I looked around at other colleges. Um, my I was actually the most interested in the Jesuit tradition of education because of the ways that it, um, it it marries body mind and spirit which which was a a thread that since high school i have understood that we aren't we can't divorce those things um mm -hmm. and so so understanding spirituality um you know health and mental health um the ways that we think and the ways that we are connected to something larger than ourselves and the ways that we are embodied all go together um and that's been something um uh that's that has been uh, something that I have found to be true since, since I was honestly pretty young. So um, I had my heart set on a couple of different schools and then my grandfather got really sick. Um, and so I was going to spend my, my senior year spring break kind of finally touring these schools and making my, my final decision. Um, I went to Concordia University in Seward, Nebraska. Um, so about eight hours due east of Denver. Um, and uh, it was the school that my mom had gone to and it was on my list. But when my grandfather got sick, I canceled all of my big like college search plans uh, and spent time with him uh, down down in Florida where he lived. And so for me, I um, uh, money was also an issue. I was getting handed the best academic scholarship possible at this at the school. I had a legacy scholarship. I had a faith-based scholarship. And so about two thirds of my undergrad education was completely covered versus I technically had a more like an increased dollar amount at a different, at a different school. Um, but I had never been there. So it was sight unseen and it was like twice as expensive. And so I'm like, okay, I need to, you know, this is the one that I know this is the one that I trust because I had no reason not to trust it at the time. Um, 
where a lot of people from my high school were going, like, yes, let's, you know, that that's kind of how that decision got made because when you're 17 and 18, making huge decisions about your, uh, you know, what your, what your life is going to look like is definitely the smartest, smartest call. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, so I had had some painful experiences in my high school's theater department, um, mostly because I, you know, this is mostly audio, but I am, uh, I'm a fat person and have been since I was young. And so um, there was some pretty significant sizeism that happened. Whereas I would be, I would be passed over for particular roles. And then at one point literally got put behind a wall to sing for somebody as they lip synced um, because they wanted my voice, but didn't want my body. So, um, so I was really burned out on theater, but being uh, performative and like being seen in that way has also always been part of my like, especially when I was younger, like part of how I took up space in my world. So I was like, not ready to mess around with, with theater at all. Um, but the speech and debate uh, team kind of offered a similar um, outlet, I guess. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not gonna do theater, but maybe I can do this, <laughs> right? And and so my freshman year in undergrad, I, um, <laughs> I joined the speech and debate team and there's a couple of moments of just like deconstruction that are kind of just funny and wild. So I was raised to think Democrats were the absolute worst thing to ever walk the face of the earth. And um, and now I have huge problems with the Democrats, but for vastly different reasons. Um, but uh, I, my um, the speech coach had a, a young Democrats sticker uh, on the side of, of an evidence box that had been remade to be our lunch box for our, for our speech and debate tournaments. And I was like, whose sticker is that? And he's like, mine. And I really liked him as a person. And now I'm like, and now there's this cognitive dissonance of, oh no, here's this thing that I've been taught to believe. I like this person. I've been told they're evil but he doesn't seem evil. What do I do with that at like 18 years old, right? So like, um, uh, so that was kind of like a, a beginning of an unwinding and I found my voice on the debate team. Um, so I didn't have a lot of voice or anytime I exercised my voice uh, growing up, it got pretty significantly like slapped down and punished. Um, so fine, you know, being able to articulate well, to argue, to, uh, to analyze rhetoric, like these kinds of skills, um, was part of this kind of deconstruction process. And I'm like, oh, wow, no, this is actually really messed up. Um, and so while my school was the perfect place for me when I was a freshman, the school itself or the, the places that I, I found myself in made me increasingly discontent with my school as it, you know, as it kind of um, rolled along. So, um, and also like, I was taught to love the sinner, hate the sin, as far as like working with queer people. And that was the kind of the party line. And my best friend from high school also went to my, to um, my college and he came out to me. And it was another moment where there's this integrity that I'm so grateful for that just says, hang on, wait a minute. What you've been taught doesn't make any sense here. 
Um, so like, there's all the stuff that comes up about what you're supposed to say, but here is this like hurting and terrified person in front of me. Um, and I'm glad he didn't tell me this then, but he told me later that if I had rejected him, he would have married the girl he was had been currently dating. And uh, at the point that he told me this, he said, I would, I would probably be, be dead by now. Um, but he was banking on the fact that I, you know, I had loved him for six years. And so if, if I couldn't accept him, then no one could. And I didn't know it was that kind of a linchpin moment. And I am so grateful that something in my soul said, don't spew that toxic bullshit that you've been said, <laughs> like you've been taught, like you need to like be here with this person. Um, and so once like in within fundamentalism, they kind of make you take everything. And if you question anything, then you're questioning everything. Mm -hmm. which is kind of true you take one brick out like the whole thing does kind of fall apart but like like the the tower in the tarot it's supposed to <laughs> like it's this it's painful when it comes down but it has to and so um when my when my friend Andrew came out to me kind of paired with this other these other experiences in the in the speech and debate world I was like oh no this is actually all crap this is bad this is a toxic place I really hate it like <laughs> not good but by that time I was like a junior, <laughs> I was like, well, I'm just going to like white knuckle it through and we're just going to be done. Like, uh, so like transferring didn't feel, um, like, like an option at the time. So that is, that is how we escaped fundamentalism. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a full body hole to the, to the top, but, um, <laughs> I truly, am, truly it's, it's always amazing um, to to get to to talk to people who have um, really fully dragged themselves out um, because especially when you don't have a support system around you, it's very difficult. Um, but uh, it sounds like you have a, a much better, um, a much a, a more healthy community around you now, which is a, a good thing because um, support is important. Um, so. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about the church that you um, are pastor at now um, and sure, sort of yeah. the, the relationship that you've built there. Yeah, um, so I have been with my church for about four years. I was a student intern there in my last year of school. So part of, um, part of our education is that you, that you do a year long internship in some kind of ministry setting. Um, so, I, my personality is that I'm, I'm usually not afraid of a challenge and I want to know what I don't know. So I went into, into school saying like, nope, I'm going to be a hospice chaplain. I am, I'll be part of a, a parish, but under duress because I still don't trust these church people. And I don't know about organized religion still, but like, I'll keep my foot in. Right, but it was this very tenuous thing. But as things kind of went on, I was like, okay, I at least need to know what I'm saying no to. And I had this conversation with the, the woman who was the lead pastor at that church at the time. And I said, I don't wanna do traditional church ministry. I want to be able to host um, specifically places where, where queer people can be affirmed. And um, one of the, the kind of movements in like popular theology that was 
common when I was in school is this idea of like a bar church. So I, um, I quit drinking uh, about six weeks after the 2016 election. Because uh, I realized pretty quickly, I was like, oh, drinking my way through whatever is coming is probably not going to be the best for me. Uh, and basically, like, the world needs me at my, at my best, um, at my most present to the pain and grief that is starting now and about to come. Um, so Bar Church is this way of like making church more accessible, let it, letting it come out of the church building and be in more present places, for it to be more low key, for it, you know, for people to feel more comfortable. Like, like there is absolutely a place for, for that ministry, but I was newly sober and I was like, that does not meet my needs. Um, I don't wanna be hanging out at a bar drinking, you know, uh, drinking beer and talking about theology. <laughs> And so, um, and actually some of the people who were doing bar church at the time or pub theology, these kinds of things are actually some of my best friends now uh, because I, I called them out on the things that they were missing about their, um, their ministry and, and equipped them to work with people who are trying to get sober and how to, um, how to acknowledge that someone might have a problem with alcohol that would come into their circles and how to assist that person. And so we made each other like better, right? Like by being in community with one another. So I'm not diametrically opposed to bar church as an as a thing, but also was recognizing that not everyone's gonna feel safe in that environment. Also, not everyone has like eight to 10 bucks to drop on a craft beer. Like, who are you going to like attract or like who's gonna come to that? If you're trying to foster diversity, like you're not gonna get economic diversity you know, your, your um, neurotypicality is probably going to be in a pretty specific range. Like, 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 like it's a pretty exclusive space in a, in, a, in a lot of ways. But because capitalism is what capitalism is, there are precious few places for us to be in community with one another in places that don't require us to pay money. So you've got public parks if the weather's nice. You've got libraries. And that's about it as far as the public square, right? That isn't, doesn't have some kind of pressure for you to, to spend money to basically pay rent to warm a seat. So for me, I was like, well, wait, churches are sitting empty most of the time. They are, you know, buildings and spaces where in theory people could gather. And so I talked to this, this pastor and I was like, I'm not interested in traditional church, but I am interested in these non-traditional like spiritual secret spaces and for churches to leverage their buildings to create places of refuge for people who need it, not charging, um, you know, not charging eight to 10 bucks just to be, you know, part of the God talk. And she was like, okay. And she met me where I was um, and, and helped me found a, a spiritual seeker group um, called Finding Home, a community for spiritual outsiders, um, which was kind of a, 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 I mean, it was a lengthier experiment. It, I started it in January of 2019 and it wound up, wound up folding in January of 21 because it was kind of founded in, uh, without the pandemic in mind. <laughs> um, 
And uh, it was a place where people could come on Friday nights. Um, and we, I would make a fully accessible dinner. So it was usually like soup and bread. Um, it was vegan. There were gluten-free options, like to make sure that as many people who wanted to be there could be there. Um, and we just ate dinner together um, and bringing people around the table. And so for me, it very much came out of my Christian faith as far as setting an accessible table. And like, it was communion but I was the only one who saw it that way necessarily. Um, and, and it was very specifically open to uh, people seeking support for recovery, um, people who um, were seeking support for any, any kind of mental health uh, needs that they might have, um, and, uh, and, and queer people. Um, so safe places for us to just be as beautiful and messy as we are. Um, and then if we ever made it past the dinner table, which we did sometimes, there was a, a ritual piece where you know, we would sit in circle and sing together and uh, do Lectio Divina with poetry. So Lectio Divina is uh, Latin for divine reading. And basically you read a, a piece of literature four times, uh, kind of from different, you're paying attention to different things each time. Um, most commonly it's done with scripture, but pulling in secular poetry um, for spiritual benefit was kind of what we did at that um, with that and use that practice in that way. Um, so it was a bunch of like, it was a beautiful group of weirdos. Like, and there was not one time when God didn't show up um, to the point where, you know, it, you know, there, there are a couple of stories of like, one person who I did know, but didn't know that they had, um, were struggling with drug use. And they came down, you know, down the stairs into the fellowship hall and said, hey, um, I had the choice of going and seeing my dealer and I chose to come here instead. And, um, you know, and we, we fed them and, you know, and we're in community and, and had recovery conversations um, about that. So, you know, so that happened. And then, you know, there was another point where someone in their fifties and someone in their twenties shared the same mental health diagnosis. They didn't know each other, but I knew both of them. And they had this really, really beautiful conversation about diagnosis and mental health and how they were both embodying their struggles with their particular diagnosis. And so, and even sometimes like there were nights when no one showed up, but that was usually when I was at my most like hair on fire, busy, like everything's like going to hell in a handbasket. And I don't know if I can actually hold space. Like, I don't think I have enough space in my nervous system. And so giving the, you know, the, the spiritual practice of cooking for other people. And then sometimes I got the opportunity to be still and nourish myself and eat mindfully and rest, like was also a God thing. So there was, it was this, it was this beautiful experiment. Um, and so this church gave me this space to, to try that, to do something like that. But then this other pastor was like, yeah, but you're going to preach at least once a month and you're going to come to church council and you're going to be part of these other sorts of, you know, decision-making and you're going to be part of, you know, the worship committee and like some of these sorts of things. So it was this really interesting balance of like being able to do a new thing and also be, um, be educated in in some of the more traditional churchy stuff about how like a parish works 
so that wound up being the internship that never ended. Um, I mean, it ended and I, I left them for a short amount of time. And then they asked me back to be a, um, well, they kept me on pastoral staff to keep running my program. So they paid me a little bit of money to keep running my program. Um, and then they asked me to be their associate pastor. And then the other pastor was figuring out her call and was really discerning that her call was leading her out of church work. Um, so for a while we were both part-time, um, kind of splitting the full-time salary. And then just in May, the end of May, uh, she left with her wife to go, to go move back home to Baltimore. And they said, Hey, do you want to stay forever? <laughs> um, and, and I said, yes. Uh, and for, you know, forever is, is a, is a misnomer, but like, but do you want to be here with us permanently? Um, and I said, yes. So now I've been a lead pastor for like four months. So. <laughs> well, congrats. And it's a, oh, thank you. Yeah. It's a, it's a really neat little church too. Um, so I'm the pastor of Vista Grande Community Church, which is on the corner of Montebello and Union. Um, we, one of the questions that you, you sent is, are you ever in conflict with other churches? The answer is an emphatic yes, mostly because they're mad we exist. Um, because we are up on the north side of town or, I mean, not like, it used to be the northest side of town. Now it's kind of just like the middle of town. Um, but we are in like, definitely not in the, the downtown corridor where some, most of the, like the progressive sorts of things happening tend to happen. Um, we are uh, about five miles north of, of anything kind of queer firming. <laughs> and uh, we are very proud about who we are and who we're here for. And so we'll fly a Black Lives Matter flag, we'll fly a, a pride flag. We usually have salty signs uh, about like uh, police violence and or, or, you know, something happening in our world that from our perspective requires a theological response, a faithful response, especially a faithful response that is, um, has a counter narrative to what the, the, the kind of mainstream faith response um, is in Colorado Springs. Um, so if you look at our Google reviews, we have, at least the last time I checked, we're a perfect 2.5 because people either love us or hate us. The folks who hate us have never been to see who we are or what we're about, but they just assume that we're heretics and God is going to, you know, wipe us off the face of the map or something, something like to that effect. They're like praying for a fireball. Um, and so they'll be like, this is not a Bible believing church, blah, 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 whatever. So then the folks who do come find us will leave us like a, like a five-star review, like, wow, this is like such a great place to be. Like, they're really affirming. They love everybody. Like, like, which is true. And so, um, so uh, so it's an absolute split decision. Like you, you know, we are either for you and you, and the sign is, you know, your signs are for you, our flags are for you, or you drive by and you're real mad that we are even here. So like, there's kind of no in between, uh, at least in, in this, uh, in this town. So. It is a polarizing space for, for everyone. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, that was a perfect answer um, and and uh, a great transition to that that um, that space. Um, I mean, I think I think a, a really good question is, you know, how how do queer people that you interact with 
react when they find out you're a pastor and um and then you know generally i think you've probably already answered this in in not so many words but um the the reaction of, of christians has to be pretty different when they find out that you're queer um and so yeah. Yeah. how does that affect your uh, approach to building relationships with people yeah it's 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 really an interesting process um so in many ways especially in the sorts of political organizing that i do coming out like it's almost like coming out as a pastor right so they just know me as mallory they don't know what i do they don't know what i'm about like they don't you know it's just like i show up to the meetings i'm helpful whatever and then you know i get to know people and they're like wait what and i'm like yes and so then i have to like articulate why like yes there is this particular strand of like liberation christianity and christianity that does like care about people and does want a flourishing world for everyone and doesn't think god hates anyone probably you know gets mad at like social inequality like like there's like a whole different narrative that opens up but it genuinely does feel like coming out because i am cognizant of um the ways in which the church has has caused deep harm has caused deep harm to me caused deep harm to people that i love um and and so i kind of feel like i want to like kind of fly under the radar a little bit until i can build that relationship so that then there's enough enough um grace i guess for us to have like a nuanced conversation as opposed to someone kind of shutting down and saying oh my god how do you how do you like how can you align yourself with and you know this kind of institution so and it's and it's interesting right because they are also not expecting me to be critical of christianity which I super am. Christianity has been a hot mess for 2000 years, right? And so like, I am able to say, yeah, we are responsible for slavery, <laughs> for slavery and like the theological underpinnings, you know, and some of the philosophic underpinnings that are, you know, have made the United States the monstrosity that is it is now. Like, we did that. Um, and even in the progressive arm, the Congregationalists are partly responsible for that. So, so even, even if I'm quote, one of the good Christians, my people are still mad you know, or like, or my people are still like part of, um, part of what has caused this harm. So it's not even just fundamentalism, like, like Christianity as a whole has caused a good deal of harm. And so I'm very cognizant of that. Um, and, and it does surprise people because they're like, yeah, but Christianity did this, this, and this. And I'm like, yep. And they, and they're like, I don't know if they're expecting me to deny it, you know, but like, that's our history. It's true. And, and what I am interested in is there throughout history, there has always been a faithful resistance. Um, and so, so yes, the whole mess that Christianity created is absolutely true. And also there have always been people who have been saying that is not right. That is not what God is calling us to. Now they've always been called heretics. Lots of them have been, have been murdered. Like, you know, like it's not, no one's a huge fan of those people, but that resistance has always been there. Um, and then it's interesting, like the, having like kind of the coming out allegory or like the, the analogy, because um, it's similar 
because I'm a bi woman who's partnered with a man, there's a certain amount of like consistently coming out all the time as well. That also happens like kind of exerting my, myself in queer spaces. Um, and I had heard all of the stories of um, like biphobia and the ways that, you know, specifically by women who are partnered with men, like they're not gold stars, you know, like all of these kinds of ways that like the queer community has been biphobic. And, um, and I kind of came into queer spaces, not sure if what type of space I was allowed to take up and afraid of kind of a reactionary like response to me, like me as a queer person, even though like I came out after I was married. Um, and, um, and so in the same way, I'm kind of expecting a particular type of, back of backlash to both my Christianity in like organizing spaces and queer spaces and um, you know, in queer spaces and obviously in, in particular Christian spaces coming out as queer is also like, you're expecting that kind of um, negative feedback. But actually what has wound up being true is that that is all internalized and that is not how I've actually been met in community. So, um, you know, so I, you know, I, there's people who call me the people's pastor, which cracks me up and I love it, right? Like, and people who have said to me, if I had you had had you as a pastor growing up, I wouldn't have left Christianity, right? So like, so by being my whole self with all of my identities allowed to come home, it creates this counter narrative, which is, um, which is extremely powerful and in sometimes really healing, um, uh, both for me and my anxieties about like, I don't know if I, you know, like, I don't want to trigger you or like, you know, like, like these kinds of things, like I'm genuinely trying to care for people. But when I do show up as my whole self, it, it matters. And, you know, in the ways that when I was first joining queer community as well, I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm just by like, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm married to a man. So like, you know, I don't, I like, this isn't my space. I'll just be here. And like people actively said, no, like your voice matters, your story matters. And so in many ways it like healed some of the internalized biphobia I had and allowed me to be like, yeah, maybe I'm not everybody's story, like, but that's okay. Like my story of queerness, my, my identity does still matter in the ways that it has manifested throughout my life. That's very powerful. Um, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people can um, relate to that. Um, I know that for myself, I also experienced that buffer that I, that, that you have to put in relationships. Um, like, like I'm Christian, but I'm not those Christians. Like we can have a conversation about this. <laughs> There's always this. the asterisk, right? Yeah. Yes. Like, like usually I say, Hey, I'm a pastor, but not like that. Right. Whatever that, whatever comes up for you when I say I'm a pastor, it's probably not anything that I mean by that term. So let's talk about it. Right. But it is sort of a defense mechanism, right. Of like, I, I have to explain myself before you have all of these preconceived notions. Cause, and in many ways it's a, you know, for both of us, it's a trauma response, right? Like people hear a religious word and it triggers something in them. Like that's an embodied experience that they're having. And if there isn't this kind of like relationship to, for them to be able to take a breath and say, okay, like, I know this person, they seem okay. <laughs> like, 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 let's explore this further. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's trying to kind of preempt, like, I'm pretty sure I know what's going to happen in your body, but like, 
but like, can we have enough relationship to just like, for you to breathe through that for a second, for me to let you know, like how I, how I embody this. But, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, it's definitely an experience. Um, but uh, one that I'm, I, I'm sure that you're happy to have and, and that I'm happy to have. Um, but I was wondering um, if you've had any involvement in activism in the Springs um, of any type um, and sort of how um, your life experience shapes um, the, the approaches that you have to you know, conversations about activism or um, work in activism. Yeah. Oh goodness, that's a huge question. Um, the short answer is yes. I have been involved in activist work um, kind of my, my door in was through the spoken word community, um, but that has evolved. Um, as many, many like significant life experiences of, of mine have, have kind of taken shape. Um, my involvement of activism came from an, an experience of immense harm. Um, so when I was in the spoken word community, I uh, had a, I was the victim of a pretty predatory relationship with someone who was quite a good deal older than I was. Um, and when I started to self-differentiate from them and uh, set boundaries from them, it imploded in ways that caused great harm. And I, I as the person who was harmed, lost my community um, because of who claimed victim status first without a power analysis. Um, and so I kind of bumped up against the ways that kind of um, spaces who are oriented to social justice in a pretty um, surface level way, like who claims this identity what does that mean about them? Kind of the like identity politics of like, well, you have like six oppression points and this person only has four oppression points. So you win, right? Like these kinds of things like it. Um, and then also the, the, the ways that narrative and who gets to tell the story um, and who's heard and who's not like really came to bear in this situation where um, this person was, incredibly harmful to like many, many young women about, you know, 10 to 15 years younger than him. Um, and only when we all came forward did some of this stuff start to unravel. But what happened was I was on the receiving end of a very poorly thought out restorative justice framework sort of intervention. So there was the stuff about like pe keeping people in community and like not wanting to exile people, which I am, I am for and was for at the time. This was about, um, I guess eight years ago now. Um, but, uh, but what that was used to do was silence my narrative as someone who had been deeply harmed and they didn't center my needs in that at all. And so his needs were the only ones that got centered and I was the bad person who then got kind of turned against um, specifically in the Denver spoken word community. Um, so I, again, I knew kind of in, the, in this integrity way that I was like, wait, this is not what this is supposed to be. Um, this is not how this is supposed to go. 
but I was super intrigued um, by like restorative and transformative justice as praxis because I was already starting to be really critical of police and the ways that policing intersects with racism, intersects with disability, intersects with like mental health, like like I, I, there, there is no redeeming policing as an institution from from where I'm sitting, and so I got really interested in, okay, so what do we do instead, right? How do we address harm? And I, and I actually think that my Christian faith is a huge piece of this, because we believe that no one is beyond redemption, right? That no one is out of the reach of God's love, and so there is nothing that can separate someone from God's love okay, if I take that at face value, then that means that people are better than the worst thing that they've ever done. They're more than the worst thing that they've ever done. <laughs> and that if no one is beyond redemption, if God can work in anyone, then even if someone, I can't find worth in someone, God, God can. And that starts making you ask lots of questions about like, how do we bring people in? How do we cast people out? Even in progressive circles, there's kind of a self-eating sort of um, energy in that we wind up policing the language of people who are supposed to be our comrades. Like we give up on our friends and we eat our friends. Um, and so that really has shaped how I try to show up in, in my community. So it's about facilitating conversation. It's about um, co conflict resolution. It's about um, uh, solidarity, like queerness taught me a lot about solidarity, right? Because especially, you know, when you spell out all the letters, you know, and the ways that like lesbians hate by women and like, you know, some of the, the stories that our, that our queer ancestors will tell us about how that was for them. The shift towards queerness is political and the shift towards queerness is solidarity building, right? And so, so my queerness, um, especially my like kind of surprise queerness, right? Like the ways that I can leverage that in spaces where, where people talk about them and I say, well, wait a second, that's not them, that's us now. What does that do to this kind of conversation? So I can kind of open conversations in, in spaces where people are not included. And then also like the ways that we realize that our struggles are bound up together um, and, and the ways that you know, even if I am okay, if my people are not okay, if, if there are people who are not okay, then I'm actually not okay, right? Which I actually find very resonant with um, Paul's ideas of the body of Christ. You know, when, when one part of the, the, the body is rejoicing, then all rejoice. When, you know, when one part of the body is hurting, then all are hurting, right? That's collective liberation, right? He's naming that um, and saying that we, are, we belong to each other. Um, and so, so my activist work has taken a couple of different forms throughout the years, um, uh, mostly in this kind of um, restorative and transformative justice um, has led me toward like prison abolition and um, community alternatives to policing. Um, I also am what's called a movement chaplain, uh, or I hold that certification. But what that means is, how do we provide spiritual care for social change movements. Um, and even if people are not religious per se, 
um, they are still connected to something larger than themselves or else they wouldn't be part of a social change movement. And so what gives us hope? What connects us to one another? What keeps us grounded? Like these are all spiritual questions. And, and there is a lot, I think, that spirituality has to offer movement spaces um, around like whether you call it meditation or you call it mindfulness or you call it prayer, like something that kind of can bring us back to our best selves and our larger vision. Like, and the spiritual fortitude to be able to hold space for nuance and and understand that things aren't fun fundamentalist or binary. Like, I actually think being bi and being spiritual, like, puts me in this like really interesting position to be like, well, it's complicated, or it's a both and, right? Or like, there's more to it than than just what you're saying here. Um, and so, bringing the skills of spiritual care into um, movement spaces has been um, pretty pretty important. So so I have been supportive of some of the labor organizing that's been happening in the um, in Colorado Springs here recently. Um, you know, I wound up you know one one of my um, love languages is feeding people, um, and so I uh, I wound up being the uh, the food tent lady at some of the uprisings in 2020. And it was just because I had a tent and it was hot and a friend and I made burritos or, you know, and hummus wraps and just like showed up with a table. And then people who wanted to be part of, uh, you know, wanted to be supportive of the movement, but maybe couldn't be out in the streets or whatever. Like they, um, they just like dropped off. Like, I cannot express to you how many cases of water bottles, just like so many cases of water bottles. I've never seen that many water bottles aggregated in one place. Um, and so we kind of almost became this like, this like almost a food not bomb sort of sort of situation where, where it's like, well, we're feeding people. And that was where I, where I got in, you know, so I wasn't necessarily in the streets, but I was connecting with people and feeding them and like kind of, you know, holding them down as like stuff was getting really wild. Um, I also do, um, I, you know, I, I hold my like first aid and CPR training. So if I need to like be out in the streets doing medic work, I will. And so my work in kind of activist work is really, um, it's really broad, but it all feels internally aligned as far as like, yeah, these are the skills that I have and then I'm going to bring them in, you know, in the best way that I can in the most effective ways that I can with the with the skills and abilities that I've been able to um, uh, to kind of cultivate over the years. That was just such a perfect transition in my life um, because I yesterday had like long conversations with people about how food should be considered a different love language and, and one of the, mm -hmm. the love languages <laughs> that's list, listed and so um, I just, I love that um, because food is fellowship and like eating together is just, is one of the ways that you connect with people. And um, it's so recognized in, in Christianity and throughout other, you know, religious movements that food is important. Um, and so I, I love hearing that. Um, I can only imagine the amount of water bottles. <laughs> that, <laughs> so many water bottles, <laughs> but, but yes, absolutely, absolutely, right? Like, that's why just having a dinner feels like communion for me because it's it, someone else might not ascribe that type of spiritual meaning, but because I'm formed in the faith tradition that I'm in, that's 
one of the things that drives me to to set an accessible table or to make sure that people are fed like jesus said go feed my lambs right like it's a commandment like i don't know like <laughs> like very you know they're they're precious few very direct things that jesus said um but uh free the captives preach good news to the poor and feed my lambs is like that's a like those are in the top five so uh so i'm gonna take that pretty pretty literally so and it, it should be. I mean, it's 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 such an important way to connect with people. Um, I mean, this I think is a, a good a good transition. But um, what kinds of relationships um, do you find yourself having with um, with queer people in in the in the community? Um, and um, and how does that shape your like your um, involvement um in like in 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 activism in um in your church um etc yeah um you know it's really interesting because it was in community before i went to school and i continue to be in community and so people have seen me kind of begin to embody and then fully embody these these truths that were alive internally um and they've watched them unfold in community and so i i think that that's actually a really um a powerful thing because it's not like me as a fully credentialed pastor coming into colorado springs and only being known with this particular role but it is oh we've known her for like you know, I've lived here now for um, nine years. And, um, and so there are people, there are people that I've known for most of that time or all of that time. And so they've watched me develop. And it's given me this like really interesting in to be a trustworthy person because of and in spite of whatever my my professional vocation may be or whatever whatever call i believe is on you know is on my life to borrow christian language and so um so there's a couple of like kind of neat ways that that manifests so anytime so there's like a couple of um like queer colorado springs like facebook groups and there's kind of like four things that people are looking for they're looking for like a tattoo artist a therapist a doctor or a church and that's basically like most of the most of the posts are those four things and more often than not i get like tagged in the church posts because people know that i am a safe person to talk about what queer faith can look like um and even if my church is not the right person not the right place for someone they know that i can point them towards some somewhere that is uh depending on what types of um like what type of worship is the most fulfilling or, or how people were formed um and and what's important to them about a church service and so um so i'm kind of known as like the late like the, the lady who knows church stuff going on you know going on and that's really cool um, so new people coming to town, like people are checking stuff out, like, um, you know, people will will invite me into a relationship with, with people who are asking those kinds of questions, which is really pretty, um, pretty exciting. Um, you know, and there is a certain amount of 
rehabilitating what it means to be a Christian in these kinds of spaces. Um, and so leveraging both my queerness in certain ways, my religious identity in certain ways. So like when um, the Dobbs decision came down, so the repeal of Roe versus Wade, I made the very specific choice to show up to the protests in my collar. Um, so in my clerical collar, uh, which if you don't know what that is, that's the, the, the traditional like white tab, usually on a black shirt or dress um, that kind of designates that someone is clergy. And so I did that and I wore a stole um, and the symbols of office that are so often leveraged against women, against queer people, for some people just even seeing me, like then there were a handful of people who just like grabbed me for a hug because it was so not on their radar that a pastor would show up in this particular context on their side. Um, and so there's, um, there are really specific ways where it's advantageous to be a, you know, to, to leverage those symbols of office when it comes to um, whose side are you on, right? Because so often the church is on the side of power and, and, you know, one of my faith commitments uh, comes out of God's preferential option for the poor, which I, um, you know, so, so all throughout the Hebrew Bible, especially, and also in the, in the Greek Testament, like God is always on the side of the poor, the marginalized, the disabled, the, the grieving, the, the hurting, like the, you know, the mentally ill, like all of the, like basically every time. And that doesn't mean that there isn't grace possible for people in positions of privilege, but Jesus and and the God of the Hebrew Bible consistently choose the underdog. And so when Christianity and symbols of Christian office are on the side of power, it just like gives me hives because it's like, how far have you come from like where our roots actually are? Um, and, uh, and so when those symbols of, of office and power are leveraged on the side of, um, people agitating for social change. Like it's pr a pretty, a pretty powerful thing. And I, and I don't wear them in basically any other context. <laughs> like I wear them to go be mad at city council or I go wear them to be, you know, to show up uh, in solidarity with people at like a, like a city planners like meeting or at, you know, it, at protests or, you know, doing court support, these kinds of things. Um, and, uh, you know, queerness really, it, it informs my my activism as well because even if this is not my struggle it is my struggle and you know i might not have the same lived experience or i may not have the same um you know yeah the 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 same ways that i bump up against a, a system hellbent on killing me but but it matters when we show up for each other even if it's not our fight it is our fight um, and, and, and that's something that the, the political aspects of queerness really, um, are, 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 are deeply integrated in how I try to show up in community. Um, along those lines, um, you mentioned that a lot of people, uh, are sent to you to get, um, advice on how to, um, find space in, um, Colorado Springs community. Um, 
I'm sure that, um, you know, since this is going to be on Spotify, um, some, uh, some, you know, younger, older um, questioning people, people who have, um, who have, uh, who understand their identity, but maybe haven't come out or who are just looking for a way to find community. Um, what, if any advice do you have for, um, for people who, um, are looking for a space where they can be their authentic selves um, and um, and find a, a community where they belong, especially if you know they're growing up in um, in the way that you did, where they're in a community that is not um, validating or um, even uh, allowing of their identity. Yeah. there's the practical aspects of it and there's the the existential aspects of that question right there's the um so on a on a practical level there are a couple of resources specifically around faith communities that help people get connected with faith communities that will be able to hold them and their identities well so I am part of the United Church of Christ. And so we have what's called an open and affirming designation, which means that we have um, as a community done work around queer inclusion and have made the commitment that we're going to live in that way. So right now about a third of United Church of Christ churches have that designation. Um, so, if, so if you're looking for specifically a Christian faith community, there are other denominations who have similar like sorts of designations like that. Um, so within the the Presbyterian church, it's a it's a more light church within the United Methodist Church, it's a reconciling church. Um, so there's there are um, churches who have deliberately named themselves as queer inclusive. Um, most of them will have a statement, but I will say within the United Church of Christ to be kind of careful because if you're a trans person, um, the ONA, the ONA uh, open and affirming <clears throat> movement has been going since the late 70s. And so our language around gender inclusion, our ling language around transness has definitely evolved. And so some of the earlier churches who would have adopted these sorts of um, queer inclusion statements may not include transness in those. So, so that doesn't mean you wouldn't be safe there, but just be on the lookout for that. That's the, those are the practical aspects of that. Um, there are also a couple of resources. There is a, a resource called a Church Clarity, which is a, um, a website that basically like grades churches on their, um, on the clarity of their inclusion, right? So lots of churches will say that you are welcome. Everyone is welcome here what does that actually mean, right? So welcome gets people in the door and then you get the teeth of what that doesn't mean after you're already committed to the community. And so Church Clarity tries to undo that kind of a dynamic. And so it goes into are queer people affirmed? Are they allowed in positions of leadership? Are they, um, you know, can they teach Sunday school? Some of these things that like this like toleration of queerness but not embracing or affirmation of queerness, like it really tries to do that. They also are um, uh, one of the things they look about it look at is um, if the churches support ordination and and of women. So church clarity. There's also a website called Gay Church, 
so like so like finding some of those um those places uh yeah whether or not it's actually an, an affirming space for people so the access so that's the practical side of like here just like a shotgun of some resources that you can look at specifically in the faith context um my like existential advice is seek out the places where your questions are welcome. Um, if there, if you are, if you have questions and that is meant met with resistance or it's met with um, answers that don't make any damn sense or I don't know, that's up to God, right? Like, you know, some of these kinds of, of answers that don't actually, either they don't make sense or they, or they aren't fulfilling. They, you know, that to me is one of the red flags of like, that's not a place that someone can be fully alive because, and, and that is anywhere, not just, um, not just in religious circles, but also I mean, even in activist circles, if your questions are not welcome, then that's probably not a healthy space, right? Because actually conflict is how we grow. Wrestling with hard things is how we grow. And so if discussion is curtailed or if it's shut down or, you know, it's not welcome, like, like that's a red flag for me as far as the health of a community. Um, and there, you know, my experience of basically like being the queer underground, like we all figured it out like five to 10 years later, right? So like the first one of us came out at the tail end of our senior year and then it's just been basically one a year since then. <laughs> like, um, and so, and I think, and I don't think all of us are out yet, <laughs> but that's just my, um, my perspective. But um, pay attention to who your body can settle with right who you don't have to be on high alert with like who you who you can like trust and and one of my one of my big things is um if we never risk intimacy then we always remain alienated from each other and so it's scary to talk about the things that are tender, the things that hurt, um, because it absolutely can be met with backlash and it can be met with, you know, with not enough grace. And also when someone is brave enough to tell the truth, then it makes it that much easier for the next person to tell the truth. So there's this, so there's this kind of dual thing happening in that you find the places where you are safe and in the safety of that intimacy in the safety of that relationship and not not even sexual intimacy or romantic relationship but just like intimacy of being able to be seen fully you can take certain risks in relationship which have profound impacts because we are all silently losing our shit like everything is terrible it is as terrible as you think it is but there's lots of social factors that keep us from saying that out loud right we have to have it all together we have to you know have it on lock we have to present in these particular ways that's not you know that's not available to us unless we choose 
to make it available to us. And so it is an act of queer bravery to be vulnerable in public. Um, and so I would encourage us, all of us, to create that kind of, of brave and vulnerable space because otherwise, we all remain siloed and we all remain alienated from each other. And that is the exact opposite of the thing that we need if we're gonna survive what is to come. I couldn't agree more. Um, it's, uh, voice is, is a very powerful weapon and, um, and, uh, and just talking about the things that make us uncomfortable um, is, is valuable. Um, as hard as it is. Um, on, a, on a slightly different note, but um, uh, tangential, um, how do you, you and your church deal with the influence of, of Christian nationalism, of Christian fundamentalism in, um, in the Springs? Um, and and, and um, how do you have conversations with, um, with other religious professionals who um, who are critical of you, your identity, your church, um, the things that you embody. Sure. Um. <laughs> so I am not in as much relationship with other Christians as I am with people who aren't, who, who, as I am with people who aren't Christian, but are working for a similar dream of a world as I am. Um, much of these sorts of, of interactions, like the negative sorts of interactions you're, you're discussing, um, wind up happening on social media, mm -hmm. which is like 0% the place to actually have any kind of useful or meaningful um, conversation. And so my kind of policy, like there's definitely been like people that I have, um, you know, uh, people that I, I knew from college and even before who, so there are definitely people in my life who I'm still connected to from like my undergrad or from my, my previous faith tradition who are not huge fans of who I have become. Um, and my policy on that is that if people are engaging in good faith, I will explain to them how I got to the places that I am. Now, not everyone is engaging in good faith. Often they are not. Um, and so, um, and often these sorts of interactions happen on social media. Not the place for everyone to have like a measured, like transformative conversation. And so, I'm going to have that, that conversation. And one of the things happening in my church too is like people have been very harmed by the Bible deployed in particular ways. Yeah, deployed. So I definitely am still connected with people who are from my previous faith tradition um, or who vehemently disagree with me theologically. And my general policy is that if people are engaging in good faith across difference, then I am willing to meet them there. Oftentimes people are not engaging in good faith though. And so um, I have some pretty strong boundaries around like, I'm not going to argue for my own 
dignity, you know, or for the dignity of people that I love. Like if we're not at a starting place where, where our dignity is, um, is a given, then, then it's probably a non-starter, right? So there's lots of theological arguments about, you know, queer inclusion from a faith, you know, faithful perspective, but, you know, and, and lots of people have chosen to do kind of that apologetics work. Um, and I'm glad that that's some people's ministry. Um, for me, it's not, it's not as much. What I am more interested in is, um, is providing a different narrative. So, so sometimes having one of those conversations in public and having it well, may not be about transforming the person that you're actually talking with, mm -hmm. but maybe about being a voice of difference and a voice for change um, in public in ways that um, other people can witness, right? Which can be transformational for the people who, who witness that. Um, so I'm not in a, in a whole ton of relationship with like people across the theological spectrum here. But what my the work that we're doing in my congregation right now is is basically rescuing the Bible from fundamentalism, rescuing theology from fundamentalism. Because if they can spit out verses for why they are doing what they're doing and like having you know particular interpretations, like our holy text supports our you know our way of embodying our faith as well, and so we sh my my belief is that it's necessary to be in relationship with the bible in in from a different direction than maybe some of our peers are so we're not proof texting particular theologies but to know what's in there and to know what um you know how complicated it is and and knowing the context so we wind up doing like a lot of bible study actually um so that so that the conservative voice isn't the only voice proclaiming what the Bible is and can do. Um, and, and that's been really powerful for people to kind of reconstruct what their faith can mean if it doesn't mean the things that fundamentalism says that it does. That is super powerful. Um, and I, I very much so appreciate that. Um, and, um, yeah, the, I mean, the, the most powerful thing that, that one can do is speak the truth and speak it with confidence. Um, and so doing that just gives people um, the, the words um, to, to voice what they feel. Um, and also it has a, a transformative power with, with, in people's minds. Um, uh, and uh, yeah. Um, I'm wondering if Kinsey has any particular questions that she would want to ask. Oh yeah, I do have a question. Um, it's sort of shifting gears a bit, but um, I know you talked about like your um, experiences in like the poetry scene, but what other sort of um, like queer spaces are you part of um, in the Springs or just around? Sure. Um, so I'm in community with a lot of um, queer people in general. So I was trained as a, um, as a spiritual director, which I jokingly call uh, my God therapist. So, so people who want to talk about matters of spirituality, matters of faith, 
with a one-on-one -on -one companion. And so the, the program that I went through was facilitated by like queer and BIPOC folks. And so I, I generally seek out um, queer and usually black leadership um, in the ways that I'm studying um, so that, and that winds up creating a community of, of study as well and a community of, of solidarity um, in, these, in these pretty particular ways as I kind of straddle the intersection of, of um, queerness, activism, and being a person of faith. Um, and I'm also one of the organizers with Southern Colorado Black and Pink, which is a um, prison abolitionist organization which supports LGBTQ and HIV positive folks who are currently incarcerated. And so most of the, the relationships that I have with incarcerated people are specifically queer incarcerated people. Um, and so the, the ways that queerness is policed, that, um, that race is also policed um, is, is central to my analysis, but it's also central to my organizing community. So everyone, you know, most of the people that I organize with in that um, in that domain are are queer themselves and also are interested in the ways that queerness is political. Uh, so I so I I would call them my kind of political activist home. Yeah, that's um, that is super um, super awesome. Um, I, it, I mean, working with um, the prison population is um, difficult, but so valuable, um, the incarcerated population. And um, I commend you for that work um, because there are not enough people who are willing to um, work in and with that, with that population um, to, make, um, to make change for the better. Um, and the only way things change is by putting in the work. Um, yeah, how do you, um, this is a this is a tangential question, but um, you know, in in your line of work, obviously you have to deal with a lot of emotional, um, emotional people, emotional things. Um, how do you um, work toward um, to to prevent yourself from getting burned out um, in, um, in 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 everything that you do? Sure. I, yeah, the, um, the spaces where I am not responsible for things are really precious to me. Um, so when one queer community piece that I didn't mention is that I have a pretty regular yoga practice. Um, and the, the yoga studio that I practice with is Cambio Yoga. They are a, um, a, a pay what you can organization that is that is dedicated to making the practice of yoga as accessible as possible. And what they've done is they have a a queer um, a yoga class that that they provide a queer yoga space. Um, so ways that we can be embodied and queer and take care of ourselves and be taken care of um, in in community. Uh, the, those spaces and spaces where I'm not responsible for facilitating anything for anyone else are really, really precious to me um, because uh, 
the the ways that I show up in community are are often facilitating. They're often, you know, holding space. They're often counseling, like these kinds of things. And and so um, I'm also really blessed that that my partner is <laughs> uh, extremely gracious because I'm actually a hot mess um, when I'm not public facing. Um, and so to have the places where we can come unglued and be loved um, for our whole selves, someone who sees the the work that we're putting in and also lets us be kind of um, messy and emotional and kind of fall apart um, behind closed doors as they need to uh, is is really is really pretty incredible um, because uh, I don't know that I could do it otherwise without without his his love and support um, and belief. Um, also like, there are, are a couple of spaces for community organizers who also need the place to be like really real about what's going on with them and how things are going and what is at stake in their work. And, um, and so finding people who are engaged in, the, in similar enough kinds of work that they understand what you're trying to do, but also different enough that you know, it's not someone you organize with uh, is really a, a pretty special community piece too, because then you can really get into the hows and the whys, the joys and the pains of of what of what this kind of work is, um, and 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 be real about that too, because a lot of facilitation work is, you know, noting your own needs, um, and also oftentimes placing those on hold in favor of of making the things go, you know go smoothly whatever it is but those needs can only be on hold for so long um so you know so for me that looks like a regular spiritual practice um regular you know uh connections with community um being in my body deliberately being in my body um i have my own spiritual director i have my own therapist like you kind of have to set up your own care team to be able to uh, keep this work sustainable yeah, um, doing the work is is hard, but um, it sounds like you found a really good community to um, help up, uplift you, um, which everyone needs. Um, as we are getting toward the end of our time, um, I'm just gonna maybe ask some um, some questions that are a little more abstract. Um, so. Um, just uh, first of all, um, if you could go back um, and tell your younger self anything um, at you know at any age, um, what advice would you give yourself? Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, and the second is. Uh, your emotional and physical response to the movie Aladdin means something. <laughs> There's a word for that. <laughs> I I think it might have cut out for the first one, um, which is oh, no. unfortunate. But um, oh. I I love I love the the second one. <laughs> oh, the the first one was the, the more the more heartfelt maybe, but it, but it's a, the questions are not sinful. Um, and to, to keep following the questions and, and trusting the questions. I, I love that. Um, 
yeah, I think I think all of us need to be told that at, at some point in our lives, um, because asking questions is the way that we grow. Um, yeah. Um, do you have any any moments in your life that you're particularly proud of? Um, and um, and like, do you, and, and if you uh, if you know, go into to why you're proud or you know not necessarily you, you don't have to go into super depth if you don't want, but um, just any particular moments that stand out to you. Yeah, there are there are a few. Um, some of them are. So I live in my head and my heart a lot, um, and and it is a, a more of a struggle to be in my body. Um, so some of my like most proud moments are actually like physical feats. Um, so so I mentioned before that I'm a I'm a fat woman, and so I um, but I have a, a pretty significant yoga practice, and so sometimes it's. Um, somewhat shocking to people to see what I can do with my body because uh, they don't expect it, uh, which is always really fun. But there's this particular pose um, called wheel, which is a really intense back bend. Um, and uh, one of my proudest moments in recent memory was being able to do that, that yoga pose um, and to do it well and with strength. Um, and the, yeah, so the first time I was able to do that, I was like extremely proud, um, which, which kind of feels off topic maybe, but, but it's, it's actually really on topic because we are body, mind, and spirit, right? That, that the ways that our, our bodies are, um, and are in space and the ways that we, we can do things with our bodies, I think is when you get into organizing work or you get into, like spirit work, it's really easy to uh, let that take you away from your body or to to um, dismiss the wisdom that your body holds. And so so building a relationship back with with my body um, in in certain ways it has been a real point of of pride. Um, and then and then there are, you know, there are other things like um, the the first baptism I got to do was of a of a, a black trans person as an adult, um, and and to be someone who can walk with that person um, as they claim an authentic faith um, and participate in that um, the sacrament of baptism was really pretty incredible. So like, uh, so I don't know if it's like. A moment that I am proud of because it wasn't necessarily me like it was this person and God and I got to be a companion to it um but it was a but it is a a moment that I am um just deeply grateful for um and proud to be part of if that makes sense that that definitely makes sense um and, and I mean it's it's just powerful to be a part you know such a valuable part of someone's life um or and and to be there at um at a moment when when people get the autonomy to to choose um, to choose to be connected and choose to be in part of a community that is um, 
that is just as faithful to them as they are to it. Um, yeah. Yeah, and as, and especially as someone as a you know as a queer person and as a black person who is choosing that over and above all of the or over and against all of the the trauma that those two particular identities um, have have experienced uh, and, and to find something life-giving. It, it's just incredible to be, to be part, party to that and part of that. I can, I can only imagine um, what, what a valuable um, part of, of one's being that would be. Um, I think, um, a good question to, to sort of start wrapping it up with um, is, um, you know, in, in this last bit of time, um, is there anything else that, that you um, have noticed that we haven't touched on um, or that you want to touch more on um, about your life, your experiences that you want to share um, in, in these next few moments? Yeah, I I think to kind of summarize how I try to be in the world is to hold space for everything that isn't a a black and white reality, right? And sometimes that work um you know, it becomes kind of liberalism, right? Where it's like, oh, there is no no truth. And so everyone can just be what they want to be. And that winds up um, causing, like making it really difficult to, to set boundaries with people who cause harm. Um, and so what my hope for, for my work this far and continuing is to hold space for everybody's becoming that we are more than the worst things that have ever happened to us. We are more than the worst things that we have done. Um, and you know, in ways that I, I said it before that, that no one is beyond redemption um, and no one is beyond the power of change. Um, and so I wind up in a space that I trouble a lot of binaries kind of no matter where I go. Um, and, and that is, I believe, a good and fruitful thing because it, you know, when we, when we break up hard ground, that is what allows things to grow. Um, and, and it is driven by a, a belief in a beautiful, thriving future for all of us. Um, and that, that there is bounty available like um that there is um that there is enough um and that that when we when we have the courage to you know to offer our sacred yes to offer our sacred no um to set boundaries to hold space for transformation these kinds of paradoxes um that that some pretty truly amazing things can happen. And, and I hope to, to chase that question throughout the, you know, the rest of my life, honestly, I, I believe that that is my life's work. Well, that is 
very beautiful and um and very powerful um i think if all of us can find a a question that is um that thought provoking i think we'd we'd all be in a a much better place um Kinsey, do you have any any final wrap up questions that you would would want to ask? Um, not really. Uh, just thank you so much for being a part of this. Yeah, thank you both too. This has been really, really, really lovely. Um, thank you for for doing this this project and for 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 catching our our stories um stories matter and so thank you for being involved and invested in the work of um making sure that the, those stories are 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 maintained in ways that they can be heard i appreciate that work and of course. good luck with the rest of your block <laughs> thank you yeah um and uh have a have a good afternoon yourself